Hello, and welcome to this Solace Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solacechurch.com. All right, the book of Joel, the book of Joel. What we want to do as we start off each week in a different minor prophet is we want to intro our way into this book with, with the same general format. Each morning, we want to start with our prophet profile, our minor prophet profile. As you remember, last week we studied Hosea, and this week now in the book of Joel, the second minor prophet, only three chapters long, let's look at our four T's, the title, territory, time frame, and task of this prophet. First, as most obvious, the title of the book is Joel, named after the very prophet who's writing the book. And we don't know much about this guy. If you look at verse 1 in Joel 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Joel. That's what we know. Uh, The proper order of God speaking through someone is first God speaking to someone. I don't want to hear what God is saying through you if you didn't read your Bible, okay? If it's not coming from the source, right? Um, But these prophets, we know they were those who were called to proclaim the word of God to his people. That was their mission. They didn't have a hobby horse and a soapbox, and they didn't see something and wanted to speak into it. Um, But instead, they were those who were completely arrested by the calling to proclaim God's word. They were, we looked at it last week, these were those who were fully abandoned to whatever God would want to say, no matter the cost. And sometimes there is a cost to proclaiming what's true, isn't there? You with me? Sometimes there is a cost involved to standing on what's true and what God has said. And so these prophets, they were sent out to do that. Joel, we see there, is one of those prophets. We know who his dad is. That doesn't really mean anything meaningful, but we know. All right? It says there in verse 1, he's the son of Pethuel. That's all we got. We don't have any more background information. We know that his grandpa named his dad Pethuel. That's all we got. Uh, one more little insight, and, and sometimes this can, we're going to look at this each week, sometimes this can help shape our understanding a little bit of what's going on, not completely, you don't want to look too far into it, but the, the name Joel, the Hebrew word for Joel literally means the Lord is our God. Isn't that perfect that we were just singing that song too? And, and that is what jo, uh, Joel's name means, Yael, all right? The idea is Jehovah is the Lord, Jehovah is God. Another way to say this is that there is Only one true and living God. There's only one true and living God. There are false gods. But there is only one true and living creator God, and his name is Yahweh. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God who who reveals himself through his son, Jesus. So that's what Joel's name proclaims, that God is the Lord, or that the Lord, rather, is God. Jehovah, Yahweh, is God. Uh, the, the next thing we have there is the territory that Joel is prophesying in. It's the territory uh, that is the land of Judah. Uh, we get uh, plenty of insights to that all throughout the book. Judah is mentioned over and over again. That's also my son's name. That's kind of cool. Um, don't write. That's not like a note, though. <laughs> you know, it's not that important. But you get the idea. All right. It's a significant place in Israel. The name Judah means praise and thanks, one of the tribes of Israel. Uh, And this is a a territory that's around the capital there of Jerusalem, okay? So that's the territory. Um, There's a lot of unknowns about the book of Joel. This is one thing that has to be mentioned. 
um, specifically the time frame. Before we get into what we do know, it's important to point out that it's really hard to pin down when the book of Joel was written. Uh, on one hand, many people date the book of Joel as one of the first writing prophets. So, so many people think this could be one of the first recorded writing prophets. Um, it seems to be that, that this, uh, this land of Judah is existing pre-exile. So it's like back in the day of, of uh, Jewish history. It's before the time of, of exile. There's no mention of kings. Uh, there's no mention, uh, oh, there is mention though, listen to this, there's mention of the temple. So, you know, there's some clues there, but that's just one hand. On the other hand, you have some people that look at this book and date it as one of the more latter books. Uh, and the reason is because when you read it, Joel seems to write like he's read all the other prophets. It, it kind of is written like Joel is assuming you've already read what Amos had to say and what Hosea had to say. And he quotes from scripture a lot. Uh, so, yeah, we don't, we don't really know. Here's what we do know, and this is probably going to be the most important piece of information as we continue our study in Joel. Here's what we know about the time frame of Judah. We know, as it says up here on the screen, that when Joel is writing this and collecting and, and, and preaching these messages, it's a time in Judah's history when a devastating drought and unprecedented plague of locusts has brought the nation to its end knees. We see that there in verse 2. Why don't you read this verse with me? Joel 1, 2 through 4 says, hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? It's like 2020. Look at verse 3. Tell your children about it. Let their children, or rather let your children tell their children and their children another generation. So this is an unprecedented event in the history of Israel. This is a plague unlike the nation has ever faced before. It's going to be historic. It's going to go down in history. Here's what's going on. Verse 4 says, What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. It kind of reads like green eggs and ham, but this little section there is describing a real crisis, a national crisis. It's a plague. It's a plague of locusts, but not just generally like, like Jiminy Cricket locusts. We're talking four different species of locusts that are absolutely devastating the land. That's the time frame. It's a time of unprecedented devastation in the nation. We get a little bit more detail about what this de devastation means. It's, it's not just the annoyance of locusts being everywhere, but if you go on and read about it, Joel begins to unpack how devastating things are. Like, what, what's so bad about a couple locusts? In fact, I think they're kind of cool and cute. I might hold one. What's so bad about them? What, why is this such an unprecedented plague? Well, Joel, Joel unpacks a little bit of how devastating this, this is for the people. Verse 5. Awake. I love this verse. I don't know why. It's just kind of funny. He says, Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because the new wine has been cut off from your mouth. So I love that. Joel, Joel calls all the passed out drunk dudes to wake up and weep over the fact that there's no more wine. It's like... You pass out drunk, wake up, there's no more wine. Now cry about it, okay? That's literally what he just said. 
And, and this is, is more than just um, uh, seemingly, you know, jestful comments. This is poetry. And Joel is describing the anguish that the people are going to be in because the fruit of the vine is no longer there. We know wine in scripture and wine in life symbolizes joy and gladness. But it's been cut off. And that's what the locusts will do. They will tear through the crops, starting with the first rank and just kind of making their way through. They're a demo team to a nation. He goes on to talk a little bit more about it. Verse 8, lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the, for the husband of her youth. The idea there is be like a, a young woman who's soon to be groom has passed away. And they're, grie- they're, they're grieving over it. This is describing poetically, real beautifully, the, the condition of the nation. And here's why. For the grain offering and the drink offering has been cut off, cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn who minister to the Lord. So not only is the crops being gone a problem for the people's consumption, but we don't have what we need to worship God. It's been cut off. We can't bring a drink offering to the Lord of wine. We can't bring a grain offering to the Lord. So it's affecting our nourishment. It's affecting our joy. It's affecting our worship. This is a crisis. Verse uh, 10, keep reading through your Bible with me. It says, the field is wasted. The land mourns. For the grain is ruined, the new wine is dried up, the oil fails. Be ashamed, you farmers, wail, you vine dressers, for the heat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine has dried up, and the fig tree has withered, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, Palm Beach County, isn't that sad? Look at it. And the apple tree. Notice this next verse. All the trees of the field are withered, and look at this poetry, surely joy has withered away from the sons of man. Israel is a withered wasteland. This is the time frame. And try to put yourself in this situation. Maybe we can, to some degree, relate to a national crisis, okay? But this is a national crisis unlike anything that we could ever dream of in our in our context here of America. Can we just keep reading? Look, look at what it goes on to say. Verse 16. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. I just want us to really get the vision here. The seed shrivels under the clods. Storehouses are in shambles. Barns are broken down. For the grain has withered. Look at verse 18. How the animals groan. They're hungry. There's nothing for them to eat which means there's nothing for people to eat because the animals are what they eat, right? The herds of cattle are restless because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. We know what that means, right? The sheep are cared for by shepherds. Even they're suffering. Now look at verse 19. Here's Joel. O Lord, to you I cry out, for fire has devoured the open pastures and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. It's a dry wasteland. We're going to learn that there's a drought going on. Verse 20. I think this is an interesting po- uh, verse of poetry as well. The beasts of the field also cry out to you. For the water brooks are dried up and the fire has devoured the open pastures. Good morning. Happy Sunday. Okay. Welcome to uh, church and the national crisis in Israel. Okay, so, uh, so this is heavy. This is a time of, of utter devastation, utter, utter Utter chaos. Did you know that this is not just a foreign thing, but plagues of locusts that cause this much damage are still prevalent and common today in places of normally drier climates. And so one of the worst plague of locusts that we've seen in 
even a millennia, they've said, is this plague that Africa is facing right now, even this year. Let me give you a picture of what's going on in Africa right now. This is a, this is a very recent picture. This was as soon as June of this year. These different locusts that have swarmed the land and are devastating the crops. Here's another picture, kind of the scale. All right, so this isn't like, oh, well, I want to catch a locust. No, okay, this is engulfed by a swarm. Remember we read that about the swarming locusts. Uh, here's another interesting picture that gives a little bit more context. You can see these little buggers, little devils up close, okay? Um, and just for, for size, notice this. Look at the size of this thing, okay? So this is, thing is the size of like a little Nerf dart. I just thought of that. I was like, what is that? Nerf dart. Yeah, that's the size of, all right, the size of a Nerf. But look at it. Look at it. To scale out his hand. These are, these are big creatures. In Africa, they're facing a crisis right now. Here's a guy with a handful of them. Just want, I really want us to get in the story here, okay, and feel the discomfort of how ugly those things are, all right? But that is, again, what's going on in the nation of Israel. The same context, the same idea. Now, in light of that, in light of a national crisis, Joel is like the crisis prophet. He could probably speak into our nation a bit right now. But in light of this, this national issue, this plague that's devastating the land, Joel has a task, as do all the people of God in moments like this. But Joel has a specific task. His task, notice this, is to call the people of Judah to cry out to the Lord and return to him in hope that he will hear them and graciously bring restoration to their land. And we saw that there. We see Joel himself crying out. We see the animals crying out. And Joel is calling the people of God to cry out as well to the Lord and to, to return to God. Crisis is often a time that doesn't create problems. Have you noticed this? But often crises, what they do is they surface problems, don't they? It's like ever since the, the crisis, man, my marriage, it's just been so tough and it's been so meh. It's like, well, is that true? I mean, it can be, but sometimes what that is is just things that were undealt with are surfacing, right? Have you noticed that? Have you seen things rise to the surface through this crisis, right? We are like, oh, that, I got to deal with that. Okay, okay. Thank you, Lord, for opening my eyes to that. Well, that's what's happening in the land. This is a chance for them to evaluate where they're at, to return to God, to come back to the Lord in hope, in hope that God is good and gracious, he's going to hear them, and he's going to bring, listen, this is the key word, restoration to the land. Restoration. Now, like I said last week, each week we want to do that. We're going to do a little, uh, we had a little moment there of teaching, a little overview. You guys good now? All right, you can kind of sit back in your chair now, the kind of the, the academic, more heavy, you know, um, scholarly part is, is, is sort of wrapping up here. Now we want to transition to some application here. And there is such great application from the book of Joel and from what God's promising to these people and in their situation. And it's, it's what we're going to also look at for every book each week, but it's what we're calling the major message. What's the major message? We know Joel's task. We know his time frame. We know what's going on. But let's uncover what is God saying to his people? What do we learn about Jesus in Joel? What do we learn and what can we be assured of with God? Here's the major message of Joel. The major message of Joel is the powerful nature of God's restoring ability. Process that for a second. Last week we looked at Hosea, remember? We looked at the radical nature of God's pursuing love. Well, Joel shows us the powerful nature of God's restoring ability. The word restore, in case you're wondering, it means 
to bring back to a rightful place and or proper condition. The idea here with God is that he has this ability to take what looks like a hopeless mess, a devastated land, and God is able to take what looks hopeless and he's able to breathe life back into it again. He's able to bring Israel, to bring Judah rather, back to their rightful place and their proper condition. Now, I know we've all had our own experiences with hopeless things before. I'm not even talking about life. I'm talking about stuff. All right, we've all had those items, possessions, kids' old clothing, okay? Pieces of furniture in our homes that have just become so used and abused and broken down. It, with kids, it gets creative. It's like, are those teeth marks on the, th- you know? It's like, and it can get so broken down that those possessions, those things, They lose their redeemable worth. Now, if it's sentimental and it was like Aunt Ethel's, that's different, right? It's like we're going to keep the vanity or the, uh, uh, what's that thing called? Um, Whatever. I'm like sixth grade educated up here, okay? But, you know, we're going to keep that. It has teeth marks, but it's Aunt Ethel's, right? That's the idea. Like it's valuable. But, But then there are other items that were like there's no sentimental value. There's no practical value to this thing. Not only that, this thing is hopeless, okay? Like, we have a couple items like that where it's like, why is that still in our garage? Anybody have that? That thing? You're like, bulk trash day. It's coming up, right? And that's where it goes. If you can't hustle that thing on offer up, you know what I'm saying? Make a dollar. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I've been really into the offer up game lately. I've just been making it happen. Slinging. Stacking my ones. Um, you know, there's the items that, like, not in the house, not in the garage, you're going to pay people to take it kind of a thing. Like, this thing is not getting sold on offer up, let go, Facebook Marketplace, you know what I'm saying, the festival flea market, wherever you're trying, okay? Like, this thing's not going anywhere. This thing has one destination, and that is the city dump. So you finally get the effort, and you drag, sometimes it's heavy, and you need a, you need a hand, okay, and your neighbor's like, I'm helping you bring garbage right now, okay, let's go, you know, and, and you bring that thing out to the curb, and have you noticed? There are some fixer-upper people out there. It's amazing what people will take from my garbage. I'm like, what, what possible use could you have with a broken-in-half ironing board? But people will come. And they, what, what's, tra- what's trash to me, to them, is redeemable treasure. Maybe they made it into, like, a surfboard or something. I don't know. Like, that'd be cool, right? I guess I should have thought of that, right? But, but you get the idea. There are those items that just seem so hopeless and broken down. And then there are these people that show up with this vision for redemption, seeing what no one else sees. And isn't that a lot like God? God has this unique ability to see beyond what we see, doesn't he? I mean, look at our lives, amen? God has this ability to look into what, what, what every person would call a hopeless situation. And God, and only God, is able to restore what seems hopeless. It's only God that looks at the trash pile of humanity, in a sense, and says, I'm going to make treasure out of you. I'm going to make treasure out of that situation. What everyone else sees as a loss of redeemable worth, I see as an opportunity for restoration. I'm going to restore that. 
This is what Joel is promising us. God's powerful ability. When everyone else thinks it's impossible, God's powerful ability to take even the biggest messes in life. You ever had a big mess? God's ability to do what only God can and to bring restoration when it seems impossible. This is the message of Joel. This is the message of Scripture. This is the message that Jesus wants us all to hear. That the, the, the ability that God has to restore is greater than sin's ability to destroy. The ability, God's ability to restore, to fix, it's greater than what sin can break down. I mean, we need to start being Christians that live that way like we believe it. Do you know what I'm saying? We're so vocal about what sin has broken down. What if we became to be more vocal about what God can restore? Are you with me? So this is what Joel wants us to get at, to have a bigger God. You know what I mean? Like a bigger vision of who God is. He's so much bigger than that. He's so much more powerful. Again, that's the major message. Now, this major message in Joel, it's communicated to us through three fundamental truths, three parts that make up this incredible point about God's restorative ability. And let's look at each of those now. Uh, the first application we get from the book of Joel, and this is kind of a harsh and heavy note, but it's helpful nonetheless. It's our foundation to understand the, the way that God works. But it's, number one, uh, sin destroys. That needs to be written down. This needs to not be avoided. There's a tendency to not really want to look at that, right? Like Because we, we know our sin and we know what it can do, and so we're kind of like, okay, yep. But, but this is what Joel is telling us. Sin, number one, sin destroys. It does. Why do we derive that from the book of Joel? Well, when you read the book of Joel, you know what you find? This is really important. Joel communicates in this book that the devastation that Israel's facing, it actually isn't coincidental or random. It's not like a couple locusts took a wrong turn. But it's actually the direct result, listen to this, of Judah's sinful rebellion. The destruction that they're facing, listen, is the result of their sin. They're crying out to God and they're called to return to God. Why? Because they are responsible for what's broken around them. Because that, listen, that is the result of sin. Destruction. Can I remind us, um, this is not the world that God created. Not with the vision he had. Not with the hope that it had. We know that when God created man and woman and placed them in the garden and then gifted the world to them as their responsibility to care for beautifully for one another, for the flourishing of humanity, for the glory of God, that incredible vision, we know what went wrong. We know what's wrong it's sin. Sin. Um, sin, let me say this. Uh, what is sin? What a great def uh, question. And there, there can be, I think, a, a concise answer. But there's really a lot of different answers for sin in Scripture. A lot of different even Greek words. Did you know that? Sometimes sin has to do with missing a mark. Sometimes sin has to do with a willful rebellion kind of a thing. I think here in Joel, the best way for us to think about sin is in the, the consistent kind of theme of Israel. And sin is this. Here's what sin is. Here's what destroys in your and my life. Sin is human rebellion against the will of God. That's what sin is. And when, I think, when you think will of God and when you hear that, I don't want you to think like what God wants. 
That God's like, I'm in charge. No, what I want. That's not the idea. When we talk about the will of God, we're talking about how God designed and created everything to be. God's will only leads to what's good, perfect, and pleasing. That's Romans 12 too, right? So when, when we rebel, or rather when we sin, what sin is, is saying, God, instead of following your vision for the good life, instead of following your vision of what's right and what's wrong, I'm going to try to become like you, Adam and Eve. I'm going to rebel against your will and your vision, and I'm going to accomplish my own. As C.S. Lewis best said, in the end, all of humanity will be divided up into two categories of people. Those who said to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. We know Jesus, the great unifier who in that garden, he said, not my will right? But yours be done, redeeming what was lost in the garden originally. But nonetheless, let's not get too ahead of ourselves. We need to sit in this reality. It's this rebellion in the beginning with our human race. It's this rebellion. Let's just move out from just the universal perspective. Let's, Let's move into the personal perspective. Anything destroyed in my life, through my life, I'm responsible to some extent there's, there's even personally, there's this, this kind of like reflective focus of how my sin can destroy things. We're not just victims of Adam's sin, right? So, so let me unpack some of this for you. Romans 5 gives us that, that really helpful verse that explains this theologically. Romans 5.12 says that when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. And Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, but notice this, for everyone sinned. It's like, okay, Paul, so I get what you're trying to get at here. We know sin destroys things. We know death wasn't God's intention. His vision was life. We know sin jacked that thing up. It screwed it all up. It messed with the whole system. But who did? Did Adam sin or did everyone sin? He's like, mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, that's correct. Yes, that's right, right? That's the idea. We're in Adam, so we are ourselves stuck in this same scenario. And it, and it gets us to think about how this comes to bear on our life, this truth that sin destroys. This is um, true of, our, of a lot of different things. Um, it's Paul in the book of Galatians where, where Paul says this in verse 7, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, here's kind of the cause and effect principle here, that he will also reap. He who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will reap everlasting life. So Paul's saying there's a way to live into the spirit that brings life. And there's the way of human tendency that is to live into the flesh, to sow into my own will, which is rebellion against the will of God. And it leads to, as you see up there, corruption. Corruption. Okay, so we get this idea. We see this in the nation of Israel. But let's just think about this a little bit more. How does sin destroy? We see here, first example, is that sin can destroy um, a whole nation. Isn't that crazy? Isn't it crazy that a nation can tank itself as its own enemy? They can have great security, high walls and whatever you want from your government, you know, and, and, and the best defense and the best military. But what Israel shows us is that all it takes is that little compromise that becomes a pattern and a habit and a lifestyle. And then when what ge- one generation tolerates, the next generation celebrates we are now celebrating, even now here in the U.S., we celebrate as a nation many different directions that are willfully disobedient and rebellious against the living God. Uh, 
sin will destroy a nation. It, it will. And every kind of sin, by the way, okay? Don't just look at the other party like, oh, yeah, there's sin. All sin. All sin. For everyone sinned. Uh, sin, uh, sin will destroy a relationship. It will brutalize a relationship. It, it, will, it will take something that God's doing, like something beautiful, and it will just rip it apart. Like in James, the way that James, in chapter 1, James talks about sin, he talks about it as like this thing that's birthed into death in our lives. Isn't that like, it's like this really weird analogy. He's like, he kind of likens our children to sin, which I'm like, yeah, I can see that, right? But he, he also begins to unpack that, that this, this thing of sin, when we let sin conceive in our lives, in our relationships, it gives birth to, to death. God, can I say that sin will destroy a relationship with God? I'm not saying it will make God not love you, but it will keep you from pursuing him. Sin will destroy relationship with God. It will, and when I mean relationship, I mean intimate relationship. I don't mean, about, I don't mean positional standing. That's established through Jesus, thank God, right? What God has, has done through, through Christ on the cross, but sin will destroy what God wants to do in and through our lives. Uh, sin will destroy, and I want to close with this one, Sin will destroy us. It'll destroy you. Like, when God told Adam and Eve, hey, don't sin. Don't eat of that tree. He didn't say, if you do it, I'm going to kill you. He said, if you eat of it, you will surely die. Right? He said, the consequences of sin, you're going to destroy yourselves. This is just important Bible theology. Sin can never be tolerable. It must be destroyed or else it'll destroy us. And the reason why is not just cause and effect, not just cause and effect, but I also want to say because of God's righteousness, because he is holy, and for God to be good and holy and just doesn't just mean that he punishes the sins of the evildoers who were coming against us. That's typically Israel's history. But what we have here in Joel is that the punishment and the righteousness of God's wrath is now coming upon the people of God. The so-called people of God. Who have turned away from the Lord. And this is another reason why destruction is a result and this is true. If you do not stand before God one day in your own or in Christ's righteousness, you do face destruction. Because God is righteous. The gospel is that Jesus came to absorb my evil so that when God comes back to destroy evil, he doesn't have to destroy me, right? But, but that's, what, that's what we're getting at now. I want you to notice this. Verse 15. Are you still in Joel? Joel 1 verse 15. What we see here is not only is the destruction in Judah the result of sin, consequentially, but it's the result of God's judgment righteously. This is really important. Look at verse 15. It says, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as, there's the word, destruction from the Almighty. This is really interesting. It's not just that, that Judah sowed in sin. Now they're reaping the consequences of that. It's that they have sowed in rebellion against God, and now they are reaping God's judgment, his righteous judgment. In fact, God uses this phrase, this phrase, the day of the Lord. Did you see that in there? The day of the Lord. This is a, a, a phrase in Scripture that for us who are seeking to know the word of God, we should be familiar with. 
It's a phrase that signifies, listen closely, this phrase that's now used of Israel's situation, it's a phrase and a term that's used to describe a moment or period in time, it doesn't necessarily mean 24 hours, but a moment or period in time when God acts significantly in righteous judgment against evil. Did you get all that? Let's say that again. The day of the Lord is a term that's used to describe a moment or period in time when God acts significantly in righteous judgment against evil. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is here. That's what Joel's saying. Now, this term was first used by Israel to describe what God did when he delivered them from the Egyptians, from Egypt. Remember Prince of Egypt? Great movie. When he delivered them, and then Pharaoh and his army was... Uh, was they got destroyed all right, by the, the, the sea there, the Red Sea. And that was called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. God had acted significantly and he had brought significant righteous judgment against evil. And Israel's like, yay. And now Joel's like, now your day has come. Now judgment is coming to the people of God. Listen to this. The same plague that was brought upon Egypt, locusts, for hardening their hearts has now come upon the people of God. For their own sinful rebellion against the Lord. We don't get little buddy passes because we grew up in the church because we were born into Israel. We're judged before God the same way as every other man, either righteous or not, rebellious or not. But what's interesting is that this day of the Lord, this day of judgment that Israel is experiencing, it's kind of like a mini day of the Lord. Like still like the day of the Lord, but like a little mini day of the Lord, okay? It's actually a precursor, is what Joel says, to another day that's coming that's actually a foreshadow of an ultimate day of the Lord. It's like, got a lot of days going on. What's going on here? Let's unpack this. This day of the Lord, this judgment, it says this in verse uh, chapter 2. Follow with me, chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion. And sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It's like, Joel, this is okay. I thought it was already here, man. He's like, yep. And it's coming. It's at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come great and strong. The like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. Now I want you to notice something here. Joel is foreshadowing this army that's coming. Many people think it represents the Babylonians that are going to be used as God's instrument to judge Israel for their rebellion. But notice this, I just love scripture. Notice the Hebrew poetry that Joel is using to describe them coming like the plague of locusts that just came. He's like, another army of locusts are coming. And, and, and just like your last plague was unprecedented, he says there in verse 2, this army that's coming, it's unlike anything anybody has ever seen. Look at verse 3. Just like the locusts, a, a fire devours before them. Joel 2, 3. And behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. That's what they do to Garden of Edens. They make them desolate wildernesses. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like swift steeds. I'm a noble steed. So they run. Verse 5. Just going to get you back here. Verse 5. With a noise like chariots over the mountaintops, they lead. Or they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong person 
Strong people set in battle array. Before them, the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. It's like the Lakers facing the Miami Heat tonight. All right, verse 7. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation and they do not break ranks. You ever seen a bug's life? It's like the locusts, right? Biblical, all right? Verse 8, they don't even push each other. You ever seen those videos of like YouTube where like the armies will like march through each other like that? That's what's going on here back in the day, all right? Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between weapons, they don't, uh, there's no friendly fire. They are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. Parkour? Right in your Bible? Parkour, okay? They run on the wall, all right? They climb into the houses. Not as, not as cool. That got a lot worse. They enter at the widow's like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark. So Israel, you just imagine, they're shaking at this point. You think the locusts are bad? You think the destruction from that is bad? There's another judgment coming for the Lord. Look at this. The Lord gives voice before his army. That's coming against his people. Wow. For his camp is very great. For strong, listen to this. For strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great. And it's very terrible. Who can endure it? God in his righteousness brings judgment against sin. It's what makes him good. And God tells Israel that there is a greater judgment coming. And it's, it's incumbent upon us as followers of Jesus. Who say things like, your sin destroys. In times where people might look on and go, I don't know what you're talking about because I'm doing what you call sin and it actually is not going so bad. It's incumbent upon us to be those who are watchmen who say, listen, judgment might not have come yet, but it's coming. It really is. Your, if sin will destroy you if you're still in it. We're called as well to point to this, this reality that there's a terrible day coming. In the end of Joel, Joel talks about another day. It's a final day. It's called uh, the day of decision in the valley of decision where God once and for all, he decides upon who gets his favor and who gets his judgment. It's coming. That's what Joel's saying. Sin destroys. Let's get encouraged. Number two, grace invites. It was already hot in here, you know? It's like... Please look at verse 12 in chapter 2. Now, therefore. You see that? In light of how sin destroys, in light of the fact that sin will one day destroy every one of us who are in it, now, therefore. Now, this is the Lord speaking. This is no longer Joel writing Hebrew poetry. This is thus saith the Lord. Here's God's own words. Turn to me with all your heart. 
with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Look at this. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. What a plea. Now why should I come back to God? For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. God says, come to me. And Joel, uh, Joel quotes from Exodus 34, as those of us who we did book club a few years ago, we know that this is the most quoted verse in the Bible, by the Bible, where Joel is saying, listen, come back to God. But I love this. He doesn't say come back to God because judgment is coming. Certainly that's a reason, right? Like, I'm going to return to the Lord my God because if I am living a willfully rebellious life against the Lord, there is a high possibility, no matter how many times I prayed the prayer, there's a high possibility that I could still be facing judgment for my sin if I am not truly in Christ. But Joel doesn't say, so in light of the great consequences for your mistakes and your rebellion, come back to God. He says, no, he says, return to the Lord because you can, because he's good, because he's gracious, because he loves you, because he's full, he says, of great kindness. By the way, that's the motivation to return to God, okay? That's the motivation for having a relationship with God, who he is. How good he is. How, how gracious he is. Uh, Paul proclaims this truth in Romans 2. He says, do you despise the riches of God's goodness? His forbearance and long-suffering? Not knowing that it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance? How do we, in proclaiming a God of justice and righteousness, compel sinners to come know him, be forgiven, and be loved by him? We don't say, turn or burn. We don't do that. We don't beat them over their head because they have a different moral vision than us. Of course they do. We don't politicize them. We proclaim Jesus to them, who is the display of a God who knows them. And despite what he knows about them, despite how far they've run from him, God loves them. That's our mission, not to moralize the nation, but to evangelize the nation, to proclaim a God who is just, but is so good that he remained just in justifying us by taking our sin and putting it upon his son, Jesus, who willfully surrendered to God in our place who went upon a cross, and on that cross you have the graciousness, the kindness, and the goodness of God in full display as Jesus fully absorbed all of your and my sin, all of it. And he took upon himself the righteous judgment that you and I deserve as a display of his love for you and me. So what God has done. This is who God is, so that no matter where you are, no matter how far you've run, no matter the extent of your rebellion, no matter how, listen, no matter how up to your neck you are in the destruction, God says, come to me. Return to me. Turn to me, notice this, with all your heart. I'm good. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to love you. 
I want to walk with you. I have a plan for you. Come to me. And there's a key phrase there about true repentance, right? Notice what he says, rend your heart and not your garments. The ripping of a garment was an external expression in that culture to say, God, I'm so sorry. I'm ripping and I'm weeping. I'm throwing ashes on my head. I'm doing again like the Macarena for you. I'm doing the motions. I'm coming to church. Okay, God, I'll, fine, I'll read my Bible. God's like, I don't want your reluctant sacrifices, okay? Joel says, return to the Lord. And don't do what looks like returning to the Lord. Do what is returning to the Lord. Come to him with your whole heart. That's the invitation. You know what we cry out to people? We say, repent. Repent. Not just to turn from where you're headed, but to turn to a God who wants to embrace you. Turn to the Lord with your whole heart. And that's what God's grace does. God's grace invites us to turn to him. And so Joel is calling the nation to come back into a relationship with this God who's been patiently waiting for them who loves them. And then he goes on to say this, verse 15, keep following with me. It says, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the, con- uh, the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. So this is actually kind of funny. Like Joe, Joe's like, okay, so therefore God loves us. Judgment, sin destroys, but grace invites. Come know the Lord. He loves you. Look at Jesus. He forgave you. He died for you. So so come know the Lord. And and Joel's like, it's such a priority right now for the nation, for the people of God, for soulless church, to be a people who are going after Jesus with everything in them. That that Joel is like cranking this up, and he so makes the point of how important it is. He's like, brides who are in their dressing room getting ready for their wedding, drop what you're doing. That's hilarious, isn't it? Like, stop getting ready for your wedding, ma'am, okay? Like, we have, we have some seeking to do. We have some returning to do. Verse 17, he calls the leaders of the people. He says, let the priests who ministered to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, God, spare your people. And do not give your heritage to reproach that the nation should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? So this is now the people of God. They're responding And they're responding to the goodness of God. That's what leads a man to repentance. How much God loves them. That'll soften a heart. In fact, if your gospel is only bad news, you know what you'll do? You'll further harden hearts. Did you know that? But if your gospel is good news that saves people from bad news, you'll soften hearts. That's what the love of God does. So now the people are responding They're coming to the Lord, and and here's what's happening. What's happening is what James tells us. James says in in James 4, 7, Submit to God, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God. Same idea. Return to the Lord, and here's what God will do. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is a posture of sincere repentance, recognizing the destructive effects of my sin. Humble yourselves, look at this hope though, in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Sin destroys. Thanks be to God that God is a God of great grace. So despite what our sin has destroyed, God's grace invites us to come home, to draw near to the Lord. If weeping is fake for you, don't do it. But if weeping needs to be done by you, 
James says, do it. Return to the Lord in repentance. Recognize the destruction of your sin because you have a God who's calling you to know you. And as you come to him and you soften your heart before him, it says he will lift you up. We close with this. I'll invite the band to come up. Lastly, God restores. This is the hope. What does sin do? It destroys. What does grace do? It invites. As we, come to, as we come to God, what does he do? He restores. He restores. This is what God does to us. Did you know this? Like when you finally come home to this God of grace, it's not like he has like a whip behind his back. You know? God of grace, come on in. It's like, what's behind your back? Nothing, okay, you know? God doesn't look to further beat us down. I'm sick of hearing people saying that. Like, you know, God has just been beating me up lately, man. It's like, what kind of father did you have that made you think that about God? God loves his kids. And when he brings them close to him, he's not there to be, he disciplines the son whom he loves, okay? But his heart for you and me is always to put us back on our feet to restore us, to bring us back to that originally departed place. And, and let's look at this. Uh, Joel 2, verse 18, then the Lord will be zealous for his land. You see God responding? He will pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, behold, I send you grain and new wine and oil and you will be satisfied by them. God says, I'm gonna restore what sin took away. It's awesome. It's a lot like being a Christian and following Jesus. I gotta tell you, I, I, have, I have some years in my past where my willful disobedience took away some of, the some of the things that God wanted to do in my life. Anybody know about that? You know that feeling? God says, no, just come to me. Watch me restore what was taken away. Like my biggest thing was my friends. I remember being an 18 year old kid and I knew that following Jesus meant that I had to get a new inner circle. Do you know what I'm saying? That inner circle. I had these friends that I was like just obsessed with, um, but they were the worst thing for me. I was the worst thing for them as a kind of like chameleon Christian. I wasn't helping them. They weren't helping me. And I remember hearing the Lord say, come to me, return to me, give that up and trust me. And what I experienced over that season of my life for about three years is as those friends were surrendered to the Lord, God brought brothers into my life. The Lord knew my mom was going to pass away at a young age and I needed more than people to laugh with. I needed people that were going to be there with me in the day of adversity. That's what God does. He just restores. Anytime he's telling us no, it's because he's got a better yes. You know what I mean? I got something so much better for you. I'm going to restore. But, but it's so much more than just what the, the material he restores. The, the new wine, right? The new oil. That, that's a picture of gladness. That's what God always is wanting to do in our lives. Pour, pour fresh oil, fresh wine upon our lives to rejoice in him to celebrate him. But look at this incredible promise in verse 25. Your eyes have to see this, Joel 2, 25. So also I will restore to you, look at this, the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. That's awesome. Isn't that a beautiful promise? Have you, have you felt the burden of wasted time before? I'm not talking about the YouTube wormhole, okay? I felt that. I'm talking about a larger picture of big portions of your life. Listen, maybe it was this past year. And you're like, what did I do with this year? 
Maybe you're like, I don't remember the last time I've actually got on my knees and called out to God in prayer. I don't remember the last time I heard God speak to me through his word. I don't remember the last time I sought him. That time, that wait of, of God, I wish I would have. God says, no, come to me. I'm going to restore the time. I'm going to make up for the lost time. If not in this life, we certainly know there's a, an eternity to come where God is going to restore every single thing that sin has destroyed in our lives. You know, this, this book ends with God promising not just to restore our material joy, not just to restore the time in our lives, but, but God proclaims through Joel at the end of this book that God is one day, he's going to restore everything. Isn't that awesome? It's good to know that. It comes from the book of Acts. Can I just show you this? It talks about Jesus, whom heaven must receive. Paul's, or Peter's preaching until the times. Notice, notice this. Jesus is ascended to the right hand of God until the time of restoration of all things. But what this tells us is that in the end, God wins. Evil is dealt with. And what's been broken because of sin gets restored. You read the end of Joel and you get this vision of this new creation. This new vision for a life that we're all looking to live into, that we're all hoping for. God is going to come one day and make things right. He's going to restore everything. But can I say, that process, it starts with you and me. It starts with us saying, God, only you really know. I know, but only you really know the areas of my life that sin has destroyed. But I see you as the great restorer. I see you as my hope. I see you as the one whose ability to, to restore is greater than my own sin's ability to destroy. So I come to you. I come to you with all that you know, and I say, God, restore me. Restore me again. Restore me over and over again. Let's Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.